0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to RX Rounds, a podcast that focuses on health education in the Caribbean community. I am your host, Alandra Mitchell. Welcome back, everyone, to RX Rounds. This is World Cancer Day, and we are here with my friend, a fellow FAMU pharmacist. Dr. Erman Ir- Pari II, and most folks call him Dr. P, so I'm sure he'll be happy for you guys to call him that. But Dr. P is a hematology oncology pharmacy specialist, and we're just gonna talk today about some of those myths associated with cancer treatment, especially in the Caribbean. So Dr. P, how are you?
1: I'm uh, I'm doing pretty well. I uh, can't complain too much. I have slightly a headache but that's because I skipped a meal which you probably shouldn't do but <laughs> other than that I'm, I'm feeling pretty good.
0: Oh good, I'm, I'm sorry about your headache though.
1: <laughs> no, no, I, I wouldn't worry too much about it.
0: Okay, well tell us a little bit more about yourself and your background.
1: So, um, so I was uh, I was born and raised in South Florida, uh, West Palm Beach to be exact. And um, I guess in, in regards to like my background, uh, so I'm I'm like a a half breed Caribbean. My mother is African American. Um, well, yeah, pretty much all her family is like from Georgia, pretty strong Georgia, uh, um, Georgia. Background. And then my dad is so, my dad was born in Cuba. Uh, he was born on an island called Isla de Juventud. And his parents were born there as well. Uh, but before that, our family, uh, you know, you go back in the generations, they were in the Cayman Islands. Mm-hmm. And generations before that, we actually originate, uh, at least in the Caribbean, uh, in the parish of St. Elizabeth, Jamaica.
0: Jamaica. So, yeah
1: yeah so so we're we we are um we're we're pretty much like sea people.
0: I think it's amazing that you identify as Caribbean with that because some folks tend to leave it at their parents. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if, if, if their parents are Jamaican or Trinidadian, then yeah, that's where it stops. I'm American, you know, so i'm I'm really excited to chat with you, especially with knowing that your background is so deeply rooted in the Caribbean.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I have a big thing for heritage and just uh um just knowing where where your people come from and
0: um so tell us some more about your training and what do you do now?
1: So I have a doctorate of pharmacy, which I which you know as as you mentioned earlier, I got from Florida and M University. Um but after graduating in uh 2017, um I knew that I wanted to get more of a, what we call a clinical background, Mm -hmm. um, meaning that you get more exposure uh, to different uh, disease states and you tend to have, um, you tend to be able to use a lot more of your knowledge uh, to better help patients um, with their health. And so I decided to undergo training in what is called a, a residency. And so um, I did my first year residency and, and just for a quick, uh, I guess, explanation, <clears throat> in pharmacy, <clears throat> your first year res- residency is very general. So it's usually usually in the hospital and you kind of are planted in different parts of that hospital. So you may be on the general floor where they have different types of patients who have different acute issues. You may go to the cardiac floor where patients have heart issues. You may uh, round in the ICU or, you know, sometimes they may have like a, a clinic uh, where patients can walk in and, you know, uh, meet with a physician, talk about stuff. So you may do uh, something there as well. So the whole purpose of uh, first year residency is to Kind of just get your feet wet in different areas and uh, make you more well rounded. Um, After that, I already knew that I had an interest in oncology, so I knew that I would have to do a second residency, uh, which is customary. um, Because the second residency is more specialized so the first one you get your feet wet, then you know if you if you didn't know what you wanted to do before you might know now. And then you decide, Hey, I want to focus on oncology specifically. You would then do second year residency in oncology. Mm -hmm. And that's where every, you're pretty much doing everything oncology, but oncology is uh, pretty varied. um, And you have many different types of cancers. So uh, the different rotations I did while in that residency, um, you know i I worked with different patient populations those who had blood cancers those who had what we call solid tumors i worked with um you know the babies as well so pediatric um oncology and pretty much became well-rounded in the field of oncology so to speak Um, and so after that training uh, i ended up where i am now uh, which is at a specialty pharmacy my i guess the ultimate duty that i do is patient counseling mm-hmm. um, specifically for oral chemotherapies so you know as as many people might know or remember uh, uh, back in the past um, when patients would get diagnosed with cancer uh, um, most of the treatments were iv where you would you know you go to a hospital they'll put some chemo in a bag and, and it'll go through your veins. Um, now, a lot of therapies are tablets or capsules. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that that kind of makes this whole new, it's almost like a whole new arena. Um, because, uh, because one, uh, they have their own little quirks, side effects and things like- And then the second part is patients are taking these at home. So there's kind of less oversight. Um, They still have a lot of follow-up, of course, but, you know, it's, of course, it's less oversight than if you were in the hospital bed and, you know, people are rounding on you every day. Right. That is where, you know, positions like mine come in where I really try to do an in-depth education with the patients uh in regards to you know what this drug is what it's doing um how they're going to take it what not to take it with um you know looking at their other medications they take at home or herbals or bush medicine that they might be taking seeing if it interacts with the chemo or if it's okay um and then also going over side effects and a you know, I tend to keep it real with them, though so I, I I I don't tend to sugarcoat things
0: mm-hmm. because
1: for me that would that would mean I'm putting you at a disservice. I don't want something to happen to you and then you're caught off guard, right? Uh, or something happens, you're not sure why it's happening or what's happening, and you kind of brush it off. So That's why I kind of go over everything and I specifically say, if this happens, I want you to call me or, um, you know, basically, if anything happens, feel free to call me, I don't mind, because I'm here to help. Um, And that's, that's kind of, that's really like, like I said, that's like the ultimate duty I do. There are some other things that I do as well. Um, Since it's a specialty pharmacy. um, A lot of these drugs are very expensive. And Sometimes insurances may reject medications. And so I am tasked with writing what we call appeals um, for those uh, oral chemo. Pretty much I'm making an argument as to why the patient should be on that medication.
0: Right. Um, So you raise um, a really good point about in the past, we think of chemo as being sitting in a chair and the IV in your arm and you know, a lot of folks get that scary picture and think, I don't want to put myself through that.
1: Mm -hmm. Um,
0: So tell us a little bit more about some of the things that are different with oral um, chemotherapy meds, maybe some precautions that they should take or things like that.
1: Oh, oh, excellent, excellent question, or not excellent question, but statement. Um, Mm -hmm. So I'll start with the precautions, because that's always a I'm going to be honest that's always something that I feel is an oversight yeah. uh, because a lot of times people think oh it's a tablet you know it's, you know, it's a tablet it's you know it's fine you know mm-hmm. but it, it's still a chemo so you kind of have to treat it with the same precautions that you would do an IV chemotherapy now uh, when we're talking about patients what that means is for example Let's say that I'm talking with a patient and they happen to live with you know their spouse or uh, maybe some kids, grandkids, whatnot. or they you know they live in a multi uh, family home. And um, what I would usually uh, mention to them, there are two precautions I usually mention. One is uh, if anyone else other than the patient, has to physically handle the tablets or capsules, it is recommended for them to wear gloves when they do so. Mm-hmm. Um, and and like I said, time after time, I've, I've been told by patients like, oh, nobody ever mentioned that. Um, and I work with a lot of sickle cell patients too. And I, I get the same, uh, same thing with them because one of the medications they use for sickle cell is technically a hazardous mm-hmm. medication. Um, And it's it's the same precautions there. Anyone other than the patient should wear gloves. And for the patient themselves, I usually say wash your hands before and after. Mm -hmm. Uh, The second precaution that I go over is, uh, sometimes it raises eyebrows, uh, but uh, for when it comes to laundry, um, if a patient has any soil laundry, meaning that, you know, there might be bodily fluids on it, so maybe like blood, urine, um, even like a bowel movement, anything like that, that particular load should be washed by itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we're not worried about sweat. Um, sweat is fine. Saliva is fine. Um, there's really only one chemotherapy that actually comes out in sweat, and it's not one that's, it's an IV medication, and it's not used that often. It's actually one of the very old ones. Everything else, we're not worried about sweat or saliva. Mostly urine, blood, and um, fecal matter or bowel movement. And so we say to wash it separately um, because whenever you take a medication or you eat something, you take it in, but eventually you have to let it out. Um, And so those uh, bodily fluids could potentially have. Uh, chemo in them, and we're pretty much trying to reduce exposure uh, of, of the chemo to other people in the house. Um, and I, I guess my main question that I usually get is, okay, so what what if somebody touches the tablet or, you know, the bodily fluids, are they going to, is something going to happen to them right then and there? Um, honestly, the answer is like, more, more than likely no. Because the amount of chemo that's in there is probably pretty small. Our main concern is uh, if it happens time and time again, repeatedly over and over in a chronic fashion. Um, So for example, if I did not tell patients this and their, let's say, grandson is always touching the tablets without his gloves day in and day out. So over and over. He could develop, he, or like his skin could absorb enough chemo to where he could have like some side effects. Or let's say it's a female who's able to get pregnant, um, you know, she could absorb enough over a prolonged period of time where it could affect pregnancy pro, uh, possibly. Mm-hmm. So we just try to cut. Um, we just try to nip it in the bud from the get go, and just say you know follow these precautions.
0: Yeah. So in addition to the actual chemo tablets, there are other medications that a patient who is undergoing chemotherapy might get. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about some of those other things and what what are they for?
1: We usually can split those medications into two broad categories. So one are anti-infective medications. So that includes things like antibacterial medications Um, antiviral medications, and then antifungal medications. Um, So the reason why uh, patients may be placed on those particular medications is because uh, we know with chemo and uh, particularly certain chemotherapies, we know that they can decrease the immune system pretty substantially. to the point where a patient could be at an increased risk of having an infection, mm-hmm. and 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 this is one of the reasons why chemo does get you know side eyes and bad looks. Bad rap. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> a bad rap, right? Because it's a uh, it, it literally is a, a double-edged sword. So, right. um, it. It's, it's, it's hitting the chemo, but it's hitting the mother cells too. Um, especially when we're talking about old, older chemotherapies. Mm-hmm. Um, everything is case by case, of course, but generally speaking, um, it would be better to get treatment as opposed to not getting treatment. Um, so they'll put patients on these anti-effectives uh, to prevent them or at least decrease the risk of them having an infection. Um, The other broad category of supportive meds would be uh, what we call anti-emetics, which is just a fancy way of saying anti-nausea medication. Mm -hmm. And so uh, some some chemotherapies, particularly our IV ones, are known uh, to have a a very high incidence of nausea and vomiting. Um, And so because we already know that. You know, a lot of times before patients will get their infusion, they'll get an infusion of uh, anti-nausea medication or a few anti-nausea medications first, like usually thirty minutes before, mm-hmm. uh, to prevent them from having the nausea and vomiting, um, because that's you know nausea and vomiting very debilitating. Um, you know, personally, I know that just from regular nausea and vomiting is not not fun. So I can only imagine, you know, how it could be uh with chemotherapy induced uh nausea and vomiting. Uh, so that's 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 those those that's the other uh I guess main group of su- supportive medications that you could see.
0: Yeah. So one of the main things we do at RXRound is is tackle the myths associated with that disease state or whatever we're talking about. And Cancer is one of those areas that has a lot of myths. Um, So I'm going to leave some of this open for you because I know you deal with patients every day and have to talk to them and counsel them about some of these things. But one of the ones that I get a lot is all cancer therapies cause hair loss. And this is absolutely not true. So can you address some of those those things for us as well?
1: Yes. Um, So it's... Well it's pretty much like what you said, it's, it's not true. Um, we kind of know especially with the um with the older chemotherapies which ones are more likely to cause hair loss and which ones are not. They they know this from clinical trials. They'll look at the trial and see, well, this chemo only about two percent of patients had hair loss. So really most of the patients didn't have it as compared to maybe another chemo where uh, 60% of patients had hair loss. So really it's, it's, it, it is just what you said. It's, um, it's not that all chemotherapies do that. Um, I have a very common chemotherapy that I work with a lot uh, that I see prescribed a lot called, uh, um, or the other name, the brand name is, at least in the States is Zalota
0: mm-hmm.
1: And, that medication has a hair loss incidence of six percent, which is which is pretty small. Um, now, mind you, any percentage is too much, but um, you know, to certain patients. But um, for me, anything that's like twenty percent and up is something that I would look at. So, six percent is actually um, good in my book. And so when patients ask me that question and they happen to be on side of me. I feel confident enough to tell them like, you know, more than likely your, your hair is going to be uh, just fine. Um, so it just depends on which uh, chemotherapy agent it is.
0: What are some other myths that you've heard from your patients or just your residency experience?
1: One myth is that, I don't really want to call it a myth, but it's maybe more of a misconception Mm -hmm. um, is that there is always alternative medicine that will cure the cancer. Mm -hmm. And uh, for me, that one hits kind of, that one is sensitive for me because I'm interested in natural medicines, but I look at them from a very, Objective point of view, um, and a very evidence-based point of view. So, if it's a an herb and it and it has studies to support it, then I'm 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 all for it. But if it doesn't, then you know I usually advise patients to stay away. So I've had I've heard stories of like patients of mine where um, I've, I've seen both sides of the stories. I've had some patients who have been secretly taken an herbal for years, and and they've been doing good. They've been taking it with their chemo, and they but they've been doing like good uh, for 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 a while. Um, and, and 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 they have like a pretty high risk cancer, and they're doing good. But I've also seen the complete opposite, where uh, some patients decide not to do any type of chemotherapy. They go to like another country usually it's like maybe Mexico or South America, um, or sometimes they go to Europe and they'll try like alternative medicine completely. And they come back with their cancer being worse. Um, and then they get on chemotherapy. And so I, because I've seen both sides of it, that's why I like to just open people's eyes to know like, hey, you know, Bush medicine does have its merit it's just that at the moment, a lot of the herbs they don't have like enough studies, mm-hmm. um, and the reason why they don't that's again that's a whole another discussion. But there's multiple reasons. Ethic
0: discussion as well,
1: right? Some of them are ethical discussions. Some of them are business related. Some of them are also just the fact that you can grow a herb at this latitude and it has let's say 60% of compound A and 40% of compound B. And let's say A is the most active one, but then you grow that same herb, maybe in a climate that's a little bit drier Mm. and it has 20% of compound A and 80% of compound B. So that that variability, even though it's the same exact plant, but that variability, Between like soil and climate that could influence the I guess the activity of the plant is another um, um, another hurdle that's kind of hard to overcome, and that's one of the reasons why sometimes it's hard to do studies with herbals. And then studies take money, so if you don't have money or people supporting your study, even if you know whether it's a herbal study or uh, you know a regular synthetic drug study. If you don't have the money, the study might just not get done. So, but that's all to say that um, natural medicines have their place, uh, but, you know, you just have to take them with a grain of salt. Um, And then I would say, if you can try to find a provider who is open-minded, but willing to talk to you, very transparent. Um, Patients to have an open mind to see like, okay, I see this person is like, you know, giving me the pros and cons of both. Um, so that's like one, I guess one myth that I've seen. The other myth or also more of a misconception is that cancer is one is one thing. Um, so and this is this is interesting, because my dream when I was five was to find the cure. For cancer, and at the time, you know, I just thought of cancer as literally just just one thing. Like cancer is cancer. But uh, the thing that uh, I feel like a lot of uh, people misunderstand is that there are there's there's probably over 100 different types of cancers, Um, and they all have their own little way that they grow, their own little way that they work um and their own little ways that they respond to therapy mm-hmm. depending on what the therapy is so um for example um lung cancer you know if people hear lung cancer you think okay yeah lung cancer this is cancer the lungs one type of lung cancer but really there's like three different main types of lung cancer um there's something called non-small cell lung cancer. There's something called small cell lung cancer. Mm-hmm. And then there's this other one that's kind of more rare called mesothelioma, which you with some people may know about because they've probably seen those commercials. Whereas <laughs> <Yes. yeah. laughs> where like, have, have you? More, exactly. You know, you might be eligible for, you know, suing somebody, you know. Um, but The reason I uh, bring this up is because they all act pretty differently, especially um, non small cell lung cancer and small cell lung cancer, they also have different risk factors too. Um, Non small cell lung cancer, most of it is caused by smoking cigarettes, about 80, I want to say it's 80 to 85% is caused by smoking. Um, But that means that uh, that means uh, fifteen to twenty percent can happen in patients who've never smoked. Mm-hmm. Whereas you have small cell lung cancer; pretty much all cases of small cell lung cancer is caused by smoking. And then you have mesothelioma, which is more so related to like exposure to like certain um, certain materials, and usually it was it was people who were Uh, working in like certain manufacturing plants and there was stuff that was floating around in the air um, and that's how they ended up getting into mesothelioma. So there's plenty of different types of cancers, Uh, even within a certain group of cancers like lung cancer, you have subsets of cancers. Um, And then, um, like I was saying, their response to therapy can be different. Some cancers respond to chemo very well. Um, Others are, they're like very resistant from the jump. Um, Some cancers are very sensitive to radiation therapy. Some are resistant to radiation therapy. Um, And then some, most cancers, you know, depending on where it is, you can sometimes fix with surgery, Um, but some cancers grow in places where surgery may not be the best uh, option for you to do so it all really depends on you know what type of cancer it is cuz they all work and function differently.
0: You made a really good case about the different types of cancers, you know, and that's a point not a lot of people know. Um, but World Cancer Day kind of focuses on the how you could save people based on preventable uh, cancers and preventable deaths related mm. to cancers. So can you tell us a little bit about some of those prevention strategies for some cancers? Like what are some things we can do?
1: Let's take colon cancer, uh, for example. Um, so with colon cancer, there there has there's always been this case that um, if you're eating a diet that's like very high in red meat, or just meat products in general that possibly could increase uh, the risk uh, of colon cancer Um, whereas if you eat a diet that's high in fiber which which fiber is something you can get from fruits and vegetables so when you hear high in fiber you kind of just think fruits and vegetables Um, so you know uh, if you have a diet that's high in that that could reduce your risk of colon cancer, and you know it. It just kind of depends on sometimes what countries uh, pe- people are in. Because here in the states, um, we have they they call it the sad diet here in the United States because a lot of it is very um, greasy, fatty. Um, a lot of it is very meat based, and the main vegetable is a potato but it's not a baked potato. It's a French fry. So there's a lot of um, there's a lot of risk in, 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 in constantly eating um, non nutritious foods like that. Right. And, and honestly, the case can be made that just eating a, a healthy diet in general, um, can help, you know, help decrease the risk of many different cancers. But with colon cancer, it's been uh, it's really been shown that like high fiber diets uh, seems to decrease the risk. Um, even supplementing with certain vitamins um, may be able to decrease the risk of colon cancer. So vitamins like vitamin D uh, and calcium. And one would think that, you know, oh, you know, I, I go out in the sun, my vitamin D levels should be great. Um, but it's important to have your levels checked because you never know. Um, I thought that I was fine because I go out in the sun when I eat lunch at work, Um, but when I was a resident, I got my levels checked and they were exceptionally low. Um, So I actually had to get on vitamin D supplementation and I still supplement with vitamin D now Uh, Just because a lot of times I'm in the hospital and I'm not outside, especially now with coronavirus, because everybody's inside. So um, supplementation can be can be a good thing. Um, But honestly, yeah, with with colon cancer, I would say like one of the major things really is the diet. So just making sure you're getting the fresh fruit and fresh vegetables um, is is really important. yeah, I was trying to remember something else. There's a uh, that's colon cancer, which is uh, there's another cancer that's similar, called small intestinal cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, but your colon is your large intestine. Uh, but you can also have small intestinal cancer is it's more rare. Uh, but one of its main risk factors is actually uh, excessive alcohol use. So That's that's another uh, risk factor um, that can increase the risk of small bowel cancer, colon cancer, and I believe gastric cancer as well. Uh, So making sure you're not drinking too much alcohol is another risk factor that can be, you know, modified. by like lifestyle choices and whatnot.
0: Yeah, so definitely sounds like uh, healthier daily practices can help with. you know, your cancer prevention, those preventive cancers, um, probably even stress reduction or, um, introducing exercise and things like that.
1: Oh yes. Exercise is, exercise is very good. Um, and it, it can also help to be a stress reliever. So Mm -hmm. you're kind of, you're hitting two targets at once. Um, but, um, yeah, really like if you just think back to you you we we kind of have to live how or we yeah, we kind of have to adapt to live how humans were used to living way back in the day. Mm. So, we was always moving. Um, well, okay. Well, even when we learned how to farm, we were moving cuz we was we didn't have tractors and nothing like that. We was out there tilling the fields um picking up the crops and all of that was a workout we were out in the sun so we were getting vitamin d some people may have gotten skin cancer so you know sun exposure is a risk for that so if you're going to have excessive sun exposure it's it is recommended to wear like sunblock or like spf 30 and up sunblock Um, but just thinking back to how people lived back then we were moving we were So that was our exercise. We were eating, um, you know, stuff that was homegrown. Um, Some cultures were eating more meat, but when you think about how hunter-gatherers used to eat when it was the rainy season, you really would eat nothing but fruits and vegetables because it was growing. Um, You really only ate meat when it was the dry season and you couldn't grow anything. Whereas now, meat is, and meat is available twenty four seven right and it's not the meat that our ancestors were eating this is like very processed meat um, and and with processed foods they they'll add certain things to help with the taste so a lot of processed foods have added sugar um, maybe a little more added salt as well and that just kind of compounds the issue so so it's 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 simple stuff. That doesn't mean that it's easy, because um, diet, you know, changing your diet can be very difficult. Um, but I, I still think it is a it's a necessity that that everyone, um, including myself, has to strive for: so a healthy diet, healthy living, and an active lifestyle.
0: Yeah. Well, I think we got so much from you, Dr. P. I think this was such a great session. Um, is there anything else you wanna talk about specifically related to uh, oral cancer regimens and therapies?
1: I guess just, this is more general, not, not specific to oral cancer therapy, but yeah. um, you know, everyone should, everyone should go to the doctor um, if you feel like something is off or something is wrong, don't hesitate to go. Um, uh, don't be like me because I, you know, transparently I'm, I'm kind of a bad patient. Um, but Most I'm fine. Doctors with- are. <laughs> uh,
0: Most doctors are.
1: Yeah. So <laughs> you, you know, you think, you think you can diagnose yourself, but really it's, it's, it's better to have four eyes than two. Mm-hmm. um so you know definitely like i said if you feel like something's wrong please go get checked out even if you don't feel like something's wrong yeah. still get checked out because um that's where screening comes in so i'll go back to colon cancer for example the recommended age it depends on what guideline you look at but the lowest age now that they're recommending is actually 45 and up um before it was 50 and and now it's 45 so that's kind of telling us something at least here in the states where they're starting to see colon cancer cases in younger people um and the thing with going to the doctor when you're feeling good is that yes there is the fear that you know they could find something but if you're going when you're feeling good, more than likely, whatever they find it, and let's say it is cancer. It might be at the very early, early stages. Mm -hmm. It might be at stage one. And something that we've noted with many different types of cancers is the earlier you find it, um, the better. Yeah. If it's tiny, they could just basically cut that out. And, you know, more than likely depending on the cancer, you're not going to see that come back and you fix the issue, uh, as opposed to waiting where it gets a little bigger. And then uh, there comes the risk that a tiny piece of that may have, you know, went somewhere and hid somewhere. Mm-hmm. They, they take out the big tumor, we think everything is good. But then that tiny piece that went and hid somewhere has now turned into another tumor. So, it's very important to do the screening, um, uh, I guess the screening recommendations and because that's, you know, that's a part of the health. So you wanna mix the two, you wanna mix that healthy lifestyle so you're keeping your risk as low as possible, but you still wanna go do screening and do your regular checkups um, just to make sure that you're doing good. But if something is there, we catch it early, take it out, And, you know, basically, you go on your merry way. And we don't have to worry about that. Again, most likely, So that's kind of what I wanted, um, wanted to leave people with. And then just the fact that there have been a lot of advancements in treatment, Um, certain cancers that, like, you know, maybe like 30 years ago, or 40 years ago, people were only living, let's say, like, two years, three years, Mm -hmm. Um, with some of the treatments we have now, people are living much longer than that. A great example of that is uh, chronic myeloid leukemia. Um, Years ago, that was something where the treatments weren't that great. And the leukemia tended to progress to a more aggressive form. And so patients may have lived for like, two years. Whereas now, for example, I've had a patient on one of the oral medicines for CML, and he's been on that for 12 years now wow. um, since his diagnosis. Uh, he was actually in one of the original clinical trials and he's still on the same drug. So a lot of advancements, a lot more hope, I would say. Um, so again, treat your body right, but also, you um, you know, every now and then let somebody else look at your body too. Um, <laughs> and, you know, just, just, just for good measure is what I would say.
0: That is awesome, doc. I think you raised some really great points because a lot of folks in the Caribbean tend to think of cancer as a death sentence and what you talked about with the changes and updates and upgrades in medication and therapy is definitely going to bring some comfort to a lot of folks. And in addition to that, knowing that screening and early detection is what's going to help you be able to fight this cancer and probably be able to overcome it completely is going to bring a lot of folks some comfort. So definitely getting tested, your screens, regular screens, just general doctor's visits are going to help them find things of that nature. So Mm
1: -hmm. yeah.
0: Well, how can folks find you, Dr. P? Where where can we go to catch a little bit more about what you do? Uh,
1: so uh, um, I would say the I would say the most accessible place people can find me. And I'm trying to be a little more active on there. Um mm-hmm. uh, in, in, in regards to like posting stuff. But people can find me on Twitter. Uh, My handle is very simple. It's it's Dr. Powery, so doctor and then my last name, and it's spelled like power plus a Y at the end. That's how I always spell it to my patients, and then they never forget. The opinions are always my own, same as this podcast.
0: All right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. P. It was a pleasure chatting with you. I think we got a lot of information in this time and folks are going to genuinely love to hear more from you again so we're happy to have you as part of our health and wellness team our wellness partners and we'll continue to keep in touch
1: excellent thank you for having me and like i always say i'm always i'm always glad to help
0: this podcast represents the professional opinion of RX Rounds and its wellness partners Our content is created for informational purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for direct personal and professional medical care or diagnosis. Please consult your healthcare provider regarding your medical needs. If you enjoyed this episode, visit RxRounds on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. And don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe to this podcast. And we'll see you next rounds on RX Rounds.